For those of you here last week, you know that I started a new series in Matthew chapter 23. And so we're going to continue in that series. The title of this series through Matthew chapter 23, it'll kind of help us hang on to where we're headed and what we're doing is, I'm not a Pharisee, am I? And last week we looked at the first 12 verses, which Jesus makes it very clear we're not supposed to be like the Pharisees and the scribes. And today we get into the details of just what these guys are up to. Now, as you know, in my family, I've got three kids. And there seems to be this um, perception in my family that our youngest, the third child of three, actually has it better than the first two have it. And I've just been observing in their growing up years, and I've come to the conclusion that I agree. That, that the third one has some distinct benefits of being the third child. Now, one of the biggest benefits of the third child being the third child is that the third child has much more experienced parents than particularly the first, and that was brutal for the first. So definitely the third is doing much better from that standpoint. The third child also gets a lot of hand-me-downs. Now, that can be good or bad. The third child, I don't know that he's ever gotten anything new in his whole life. I mean, basically everything new to him was new to somebody else. And so that can be good, that can be bad, but there are definitely distinct benefits. Now, one of the things that is, that is perceived in our home is that there are certain um, ways that the third child's treated that's better than the first two. He gets it an easier road in some sense. You follow what I'm getting at here? Now... I think that what's going on most of the time in those situations is that the third kid has watched the first two kids mess up, and it's like, I don't want any part of that punishment. And uh, he's a little bit wiser because he's learning from the mistakes of the first two. I think that's predominantly what's going on there. And speaking of mistakes, have you guys ever, in, in your experiences, if you think back, adults, to the time when you were kids, did, did your parents have some little phrase or tone about them, that when that phrase or tone came out, you knew the next thing that was going to happen was not going to be good? I mean, did, was it your full name, Kevin Michael Eckert, you know, and you heard that, it's like, uh-oh, trouble. You know, did you ever have that? Some of you kids are sitting there thinking about what your parents do right now, and you're like, they got it. I know the tone. I know the phrase. It's not good. Well, Jesus had a word like that, and it's a word that we do not want to hear ourselves. In fact, we would be wise to hear Jesus say it to someone else and learn from their mistakes. That's what we're going to try to do as we walk through Matthew 23. We're going to watch and see what Jesus says, and we're going to try to learn from somebody else who heard that phrase that should literally put fear in all our hearts. Let's look at Matthew chapter 23. We're going to read verses 13, 14, and 15. Before I read the text, let me take a quick poll. How many of you read out of the New International Version of the Bible? Let me see your hand. All right. How many of you read out of the English Standard Version, the ESV? All right. How many out of the New American Standard? Okay. How many out of the King James? Okay. How many out of the Pew Bible? I'm glad we got those Pew Bibles. Real comforting there. All right. If you don't have your Bible today, use the Pew Bible. It's the New American Standard. And the reason I'm asking that question is because when I read verses 13, 14, and 15, some of you, those who read the NIV and the ESV, 
are not going to see verse 14 in your text. You'll see a footnote after 13, and at the bottom of the page, you'll see verse 14 written in with the phrase that says, does not appear in the earliest of manuscripts. Now, in the New American Standard, you'll see this verse 14 in brackets with a footnote saying the same thing. Um, my text, it appears in the bottom of the footnote area, but I'm going to read 13, 14, and 15, and then later on in the sermon, I'll explain what's going on with the brackets and the movement of the text to the footnote. Just want to make that clear as we read through it so those of you who don't have it in the text, you're not wondering what went wrong with your Bible. Here we go, verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut up the kingdom of heaven from men. For you yourselves are not entering, and you don't allow those who are entering to actually go in. And look down at verse 14. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, Because you devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. On account of this, you will receive greater condemnation. Back up to 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel across sea and land to make one proselyte or one convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice the son of hell as yourself. Hopefully, in reading those three verses, you picked up Jesus' phrase, Woe to you. When you hear that, what follows is not good. We've encountered this phrase only two times previously in Matthew. Matthew chapter 11, Matthew chapter 18. Both of those times, the words, Woe to you, were connected to judgment. Eternal in nature. We would call it the wrath of God or hell. Now, when you talk about the subject of hell, that's not exactly a popular subject. It's not like you come to church hoping that the pastor is going to preach on hell because you haven't had a good dose of that kind of preaching lately. It's just not one of those subjects that you sign up for. In fact, a lot of churches and even some popular authors and speakers today are speaking or producing literature communicating that hell is really not all that big a deal. In fact, the worst of hell is what you're going to experience here on earth. And I'm just going to tell you this morning, without getting into details or calling out names like Rob Bell or anything like that, I just want to point out to you that Jesus Christ talks about hell. And that hell is a real place. It's a real experience. It's a real consequence to a life of rejecting God. And hell is bad. This is not a place you want to end up. Hell is a place of eternal torment and suffering. A place of darkness and separation from God. And Jesus talks about it a lot. And every time He says, Woe to you! It's in reference to a warning against hell. The New Testament writers use words about hell like eternal fire, unquenchable fire, a place where the worm does not die, a place of no joy, no peace, no hope, eternal destruction. You think about the worst of the experiences anyone could possibly have on this earth, And the worst of what this earth has to offer is a million miles from the best of what hell has to offer. It's the same sense of 
the best of what this earth has to offer is a far cry from the worst that heaven has to offer. So hell is something we cannot even imagine. And Jesus talks about it. And we should understand these words and these three verses, woe to you, as warnings against the demise of hell. Warnings to us today from God to do everything we can to avoid the judgment of heaven. And then Jesus calls these guys scribes and Pharisees, he calls them hypocrites. Now, Jesus already defined this term hypocrites for us. He's used it in chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 15, and chapter 22. He's used it quite a bit. He's used it in reference to these guys. And contextually, he's defined this term for us so that we should understand, if you were to look at all these occurrences, chapter 6, 7, 15, and 22, and then here in 23, you'd be able to determine from the context and the usage that Jesus is doing here that this term means someone who is acting like someone that they are not for their own benefit with no intention to change. Someone who's acting like something they are not for their own benefit with no intention of changing. Now, a couple weeks ago, I established the fact that the church, our church, is not full of hypocrites. It's not full of people who are acting like something they're not with no intention of changing, and they're acting that way to benefit themselves, to gain something for themselves. The church is not full of people like that. Now, there may be a couple of people in here like that, and those are the people that the Scripture warns us to guard ourselves against, to protect ourselves against, because those people are, in fact, tools of the enemy to distract and mislead those who are seeking after the Lord. What the church is full of is imperfect people. And most people that I know in this church generally want to move towards the Lord and not away from Him. But I will tell you that I, I really see that most of us in this place have experienced what I'm going to call degrees of hypocrisy. We're not full-blown hypocrites, as Jesus defines it, for the most part. But we have this tendency of experiencing degrees of hypocrisy. Let me explain what I mean by that. Let's look, start with the first degree. Hypocrisy in the first degree. This would be acting like um, you are better than you really are in a particular moment. So let's say you come into church on Sunday morning and somebody comes up to you and they genuinely ask you a question. They say, hey, I want to know how you're doing today. And you know this is not just the casual walk by the hallway. How you doing? Oh, good. It's good to see you. And, you know, no meaning to that. It's just a casual greeting. This is sincere. They walk up and they say, hey, I want to know how you're doing. And in that moment, you decide to say, I'm doing great. When, in fact, you know you're not doing so great. And maybe it's some issue with some sin that's happened in your week, your week. Maybe it's an issue with a relationship. Maybe it's just a personal emotions. You just, you're not okay. Something's wrong spiritually. 
And when you're asked, you respond with everything's clear sailing here. But the second you do it, you recognize the travesty of not being honest. And you wish you could take that moment back. Because you know you really do need to tell someone just how you're really doing. And you regret it. In that moment, you choose just to hide a little bit. See, that's hypocrisy to the first degree. Hypocrisy to the second degree is when you just stack a series of those moments together. You end up hiding for a little bit longer period of time. So that you come into the next men's Bible study. And you sit there and you smile at the right times. And you nod at the right things. And you affirm the right statements. And everybody in there comes to the conclusion that you're really getting it done at home. You're loving your wife faithfully. You're raising your kids well. You're being a spiritual leader in your home. But in reality, if you were asked that question, you would say, I'm really not who I am appearing to be. You see, hypocrisy to the second degree is when you're actually appearing to be something that you're not because you've connected a series of these moments together. And it's not that you really want to appear something different. You really are plagued by the reality that you're not appearing to be who you really are with the people who say they care about you. And you feel at this point you're stuck in some kind of perceived trap. You just don't know how to get out of it, but you prefer it to be different. That's hypocrisy to the second degree. And then you have hypocrisy to the pharisaical degree. It's where you've strung together a series of those moments in such a long period of time, you don't know any other way to act except acting like something you're not. Because it's the only way you can survive, find any level of satisfaction, and you just have no intention of ever changing. And it's that point where you hear the phrase, woe. I hope you recognize that this text in Matthew chapter 23 is not a warning for Pharisees. It's actually a warning for you and I. And my prayer is that this morning we would make a decision to respond to what Jesus says so that we move away from even the slightest degree of hypocrisy towards godliness. We do not want to hear the word, woe to you. So let's look at what Jesus said. Verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut up the kingdom of heaven from men. You yourselves are not entering, and you do not allow those who are going in to enter. These scribes and Pharisees, they knew the truth. They knew the prophets. They knew the laws. They knew the Bible, the Old Testament. They should have recognized Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Instead, they reject him. 
and those who have some desire to see if Christ is the Messiah, these guys are taking them and dismantling their budding faith and pointing them in the direction opposite of Jesus Christ. They are actually trying to enter into the kingdom through faith in Christ. And the Pharisees and scribes come along and they say, You're not going in there. Not on our watch. Get away from Jesus. Now they're doing all of this taking people away from Christ and refusing to follow Christ themselves while they give an appearance of being concerned, highly concerned, more than anybody else in their, in their society about the things of God. So these guys are giving the impression we have the most concern of anyone about the things of God, but when it comes to the most important thing of God, the Messiah, we're going to reject Him and we're going to point everybody away from Him. Hypocrites. Alright, so what does that look like in hypocrisy of the first degree? You're a follower of Christ. You've decided that you want to follow Christ and obey Him in all areas of your life. You're reading the Scripture. You're spending time in prayer. You're engaged with other believers. You're faithful in church. You've shared your faith and occasions on the past. You've tried to be faithful in all areas of your life and following Christ. You're struggling forward to follow Christ in every way. And then you have this opportunity come up where somebody who does not know Christ is right there in your path and you have this opportunity to tell them about the gospel. And what do you do? You choose not to tell them. Maybe it's because you're afraid. Maybe because you already presuppose that they're not going to receive it. But for whatever reason you rationalize in your mind, in the moment where the opportunity is given, you choose not to share Christ. No doubt you regret it. No doubt you wish you could have that moment back. But that moment is hypocrisy in the first degree because you know they need Christ. You know what it means to be saved and then to be given an opportunity to share it, and you don't. It doesn't mean you're a hypocrite, but it's certainly a movement in the wrong direction. Hypocrisy to the second degree is just putting a series of those experiences together. You just keep putting them together. And instead of making a change in your life and repenting, you just keep piling on those moments. And before you know it, you haven't shared Christ with anybody in six months. Then the next thing you know, you haven't shared Christ with anybody in two years. And then it's been five years. Then it's been ten years. And you can't even remember how to do it. Even if you would do it, if you had the opportunity, you wouldn't know what to say. You're so distanced from obedience. But if you were asked the question, when the sermons come and, and the things are said in groups and situations, you feel the conviction, but you feel like you're in a trap and you don't know how to get out of it. Well, the way out of that seeming trap is the same way out of that single moment. It's just called repentance. You're not a hypocrite, but you're certainly a lot closer to the pharisaical degree of hypocrisy. And if you follow what I'm saying this morning, we ought to be doing everything we can to move away from any degree of hypocrisy. We ought to be sharing our faith. Because that's faithfulness. 
verse 14. Now, just hang with me, all right? Verse 14 is in brackets or in the footnotes because your Bible is a representation, your New Testament is a representation of thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament all compiled into what is a duplication of the original. We don't have the original. When the originals were written, they were then copied. And the originals were not kept because they would deteriorate. They didn't want to have deteriorated copies so that there would be errors from those copies. And so they just make copies of copies and destroy the original copies and keep the copy. And so we've got all these thousands of manuscripts that make up what we are pulling our information from to duplicate the original. What happened along the way is that there were copyists who inserted verse 14 either before 12 or after 13 so that this verse appears in the Gospel of Matthew but is in fact from the Gospel of Mark and Luke. You can look in Mark and Luke's Gospel and this verse will appear in those Gospels. And they are attested to being a part of the original Gospel of Mark and Luke. So somewhere along the way, the copyist, because this is a similar scene as in Matthew, inserts verse 14 into Matthew 23. Then later on, as we begin to study the vast amount of manuscripts attesting to the New Testament, it was discovered that some of the early and very reliable manuscripts don't include verse 14 in Matthew 23. So the conclusion was that although verse 14 appears in a reliable place in another gospel, it was not really a part of the original writing of the gospel of Matthew. And so what your translators have done for you is they've given you a reflection of of the textual, what's called textual criticism, Um, that has brought to us this New Testament. And so what you have in your Bible is that your translator is saying, look, this appears in a lot of the manuscripts, but it's the later manuscripts. They're reliable, but the earlier reliable ones don't have it. And the reason is because this is an excerpt from Mark and Luke inserted into Matthew. The brackets are there, and the way they're explaining that to you is it's not found in the earliest of manuscripts. Now, here's what I want you to know about that. Number one. When you read verse 14 in the context of Matthew, we are reading from something out of Mark and Luke. Did not appear in Matthew's original writing. We're still going to deal with it. It's biblical. It fits in the flow of what we're going to do. We're going to apply it, deal with it right here. All right? Second thing I want you to know. Of all writings in ancient history, there is none attested to like the New Testament. None. Not even close. The best of historical writings are attested to in the manuscripts of a hundred. And that's enormous. Most of them are in the teens. The New Testament is in the thousands. And what we have in your New Testament is a virtual reproduction of the original script. Is everybody with me now? 
I just don't want you to see those kinds of brackets and footnotes and to be confused about what's going on there. And I don't want you to walk away from the text today with less certainty about the reliability of the text. I want you to walk away with more certainty about the reliability of the text. The New Testament is the most reliable historical document in the history of mankind. Nothing is more reliable than the book we hold. Nothing. Because God authored it. God preserved it and brought it about in such a way that even today we can look at what it says and with certainty know that this represents the original. Everybody good? You got further questions, you know where to find them. Verse 14. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. For this reason you will receive greater condemnation. So Jesus says of these guys, You take people who are hurting and need help, and you hurt them worse. And while you do it, for your own benefit, you give the impression that you are really righteous. You're giving these long, incredible prayers in public, and behind the scenes, you are devouring widows' homes. You are hurting those who need help, all the while giving the appearance of righteousness. So what does that look like, hypocrisy to the first degree? Maybe there's somebody in the church family that has a crisis and they have a need. And we decide that we're just going to take a church offering to help that need. And so you decide to give. You don't give so that other people will see you, but certainly people around you notice whether or not you're giving. And so you give, and when you get home, you begin to contemplate that, and you recognize that, that your giving in that moment really wasn't what God had placed in your heart to give. In fact, God had placed in your heart to be much more generous than you were. But in the moment, you explained away your generosity by things you have going on in your own life. You got this bill, you got this unforeseen deal, but you know, you know that God was convicting you to be more generous than you were. And whether it's out of fear, apprehension, or just uncertainty, you don't respond to the Lord. And you've given the appearance of obedience when in fact in your own heart you know that you fell short of what it really was to obey Him. See, that's hypocrisy to the first degree. And you move into hypocrisy to the second degree when you just compile moments like that where God's convicting you to give, but you don't give the way God is convicting you to give. And pretty soon you end up spending 10, 15, 20 years in a church giving the impression that you've been supportive and faithful in all matters. But in the one area that Jesus addresses more than any other area of Scripture, money, you have been completely unfaithful. And if your record of giving were to be made public, it would be astonishing. Because you gave every appearance of genuinely caring. But you never gave hardly anything. And in reality, you would probably say, you know, that's not how I intended things to end up. It's really not how I want things to be. 
and you rationalize why you ended up there. We just had these things come up. We had to get this. We had to do this. We had to send our kids to college. We had all these reasons why we couldn't be faithful, but we wanted to. Hypocrisy is second to that. You're not a hypocrite. You're just definitely moving in the wrong direction. And what we want to make sure we do in this place is move in the direction of godliness and faithfulness so there's not even hypocrisy to the slightest degree in our life. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel across the sea and dry land to make one convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice the son of hell as you are. So these guys would try to get somebody to become just like them. And Jesus says, you're getting these people to become like you, become a Pharisee. And what you've really done to them is you've turned them into twice the son of hell as you are. Now, think about the implications of that little indictment. Jesus just said of the Pharisees and scribes, right now you guys are sons of hell, which means you are fit for hell, you're headed to hell, and unless you get off this path, that's where you're going. And everybody that you get to follow you and become just like you is twice off worse than you are. That's pretty bad. Hypocrisy to the first degree. Somebody in your life that you are friends with, has come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And you really, really care about their life in Christ. You genuinely do. And you know they need help in following Christ. And you want to help them. But the fact is, you know that your own relationship with Christ is not like you think it should. And so you just don't really step in offer help. I mean, you do encourage that person to talk to the pastor because you're sure his life is right. But you don't do what you know you should do in that moment. And then there's hypocrisy to the second degree. You just stack a series of those moments through your life and guess what you end up becoming? You become that person that a new believer looks at and totally ends up misunderstanding what it means to follow Christ. Because your life gives the impression that Christianity is just about coming to church on Sundays and it doesn't really matter what happens in your life Monday through Saturday. You didn't intend on ending up in that place. If you were really honest with the Lord, you'd probably weep over the years you've lost. But you just don't know how to get out. It's your penance. You're not a hypocrite. You're not acting like something that you're not for your own benefit with no intention of changing. But you do feel stuck. I'm praying that you hear Jesus' woe to you addressed to the Pharisees. A warning to the Pharisees, but an invitation to you and me. An invitation to repentance. How do you move away from any degree of hypocrisy? 
How do you move away from it into godliness? Well, it's real plain and simple. Here it is. Here's the earth-shattering truth. Don't do what the Pharisees did. If you want to move away from any degree of hypocrisy, then Jesus is going to walk us through every week here through chapter 23 what the Pharisees were doing, and we just need to make sure we're not doing that. So let's summarize today by saying we want to make sure that everything in our life is not closing the door to the grace of God through faith in Christ to those around us. In other words, we want to make sure that everything we say and everything we do in our lives is opening wide the door for everyone to see the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We want people to see Christ, to hear Christ, to know Christ through us and all that we do. The youth this week heard it like this. Be hope-giving. Just be hope-giving. That everything you do and everything you say opens the door of grace through faith in Christ. So, if someone is a new believer and you know that your walk with Christ is not where you think it should be, to help them, then just tell them, hey, I know you're a new believer, and I know you need help to be able to walk with Christ, but guess what? My walk with Christ is not all that I think it should be. So in reality, we're kind of in the same boat, and what I'd really like is for us to try to walk together towards the Lord. Do you know what you just did? You opened wide the door of grace by staying in grace yourself. If we're going to open wide the door of grace and move away from any degree of hypocrisy, we better stay in grace ourselves and just be real. So when the person comes up to you and says, how are things going? And you say, hey, do you have a minute? I'm not sure you really knew what you're getting to. You asked that question. But let me tell you. This is where I've been struggling this last week. I could have pretended, but I want to stay in grace. You know what grace is? It's God's unmerited favor towards us simply because we trust in Christ. You know what His favor is? It's the favor that He shows towards Christ. That's the favor we receive when we stay in grace. Stay in grace. We open wide the door of grace. And the best way for you and I to stay in grace is to make sure we walk with Christ in full view of His holiness. You know what the Pharisees and scribes were unwilling to see? The holiness of Jesus Christ. And so they're able to explain away what they're doing is not any problem at all. We've got to walk in view of the holiness of Christ so that our need for His grace is always apparent and we can be genuine and authentic in our walk. I met a lady this last week and uh, her little daughter, and they needed some help. And so I was going to try to help them out a little bit. And in the course of conversation, I just asked her, I said, hey, do you know what it means to be a Christian? This is what she said to me. It means you, you, you're baptized. 
when you get baptized and you're a Christian. I said, well, do you know what the Bible says about what it means to be a Christian? She's like, I don't, I don't know if I do or not. I said, well, can I just quickly tell you about that? She goes, sure. And so I began to tell her about how everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, how we've all made mistakes, and those mistakes have separated us from God, and the penalty of those sins is death. We're all going to die and go to hell because of those sins. But God, in His love for us, sent His Son, who lived a perfect life, never sinned, and He actually took God's penalty for our sin on Himself, He died for us. He took all of God's wrath for us so that we trust in Him and ask Him to forgive us of our sins, that we will be forgiven and that the penalty of death will be removed from us and we'll be alive forever as a gift from God because of what Christ has done. Isn't that great news? And she says, this is what she said, God will never accept You have no idea what I've done. And she started listing off some of the things she's done. And let me tell you, they weren't good things. And I said to her, I said, hey, I'm just curious. Do you think I'm a lot better than you are? She said, oh, yeah. She knows I'm the pastor of this church. And she said, she basically said, I doubt that you've ever sinned. I'm like, just a second, I'm going to get my wife on the phone. I want you to talk to her. You tell her what you just said. No. And, but, but here's the deal. She perceived that I was a lot better candidate for salvation than she was. If I ever believe that, I will become a Pharisee. I keep the holiness of Christ in view, then I'll say to this lady, ma'am, do you recognize that the standard of your life and my life is the same? The standard is Jesus Christ and His holiness. And when He's the measure of my life, guess what? I'm as bad off as you are. We are both going to hell without Jesus Christ. But I said the great news is that God has invited both of us to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. I said, what do you think about that? And she said, I'd like to be forgiven. That's what she told me. You pray for her. You pray for her that she'll make that decision and follow Christ. But listen. Woe to you is not anything we want to hear. And I want to encourage you this morning to make the decision to move away from any degree of hypocrisy that God has unveiled in your life this morning. Any degree. Repent. Move towards grace. And follow Christ. These warnings are meant to be invitations to all of us to start a fresh path of godliness. So start one today.